Welcome to episode 295 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on 21st of April, 2022. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast, and of course, I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast since 2006. For show notes, links, and other information, check out our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here's my fellow host and producer, Carlton Reed and The Spokesman. Thanks, David, and welcome to the show, which is a little under an hour with Professor Kim Nicholas, an American sustainability scientist based right now in Lund, Sweden. But before we get into this great episode, I have some thanks to give and a welcome to make. Those of you who have listened to the show for a wee while will know that our long-term sponsor has been the American online retailer Jensen USA. Amazingly, they've been our title sponsor since 2008, two years after the show started. Now, 14 years is a long time to retain the same sponsor. And we are so grateful, that's me and David, uh, for Jensen's USA support over those years. But all good things must come to an end. And Jensen is now taking its leave. But we're not. And I am thrilled to report that we have a new title sponsor in Turn Bicycles. You'll know Turn, of course, from the GSD electric cargo bike and other modern classics. Turn is a long-time friend of the show. Co-founder Josh Hon has been a guest several times, and so it's a great fit. Turn support will enable us to continue producing the Spokesman podcast. We'll be working with Turn on intros and audio bumpers and all the other things that podcasts do with their partners. But for now, let's get started with today's show, which is my conversation with Professor Kim Nicholas, co-author of a new study which ranks the 12 best ways to reduce car dependence in cities. Before we get into to the, the paper that you, you've you co-authored with, with Paula Cuss, I first came uh, uh, upon you because you had this viral placard stroke poster, because you're a climate scientist. So, so tell me what that, that placard stroke poster said that was from my first climate protest in 2014. It's based on framework I've been teaching for a long time. And it's almost a haiku of everything you need to know about climate change boiled down to five statements. So it's warming. It's us. We're sure. It's bad. We can fix it. Yes. And then you've, you've taken that haiku and you then made a book out of it in effect. So Under the Sky We Make is your latest book. So is that, would I be right in thinking that is an expansion upon that fr- that that number of linked, very short uh, sentences? Is that is that the expansion of it? 
Yes, I do use that framework in Under the Sky We Make. I also organize the book by facts, feelings, and action. Those are the three secret ingredients we need to actually tackle climate change. And I talk about the facts of how we know that it's warming and it's us and that scientists are sure. Um, I deal with some of the emotional impacts in the feelings because it is really bad and that's something that's tough to face and we need coping skills and ways to face it in order to do the work and find purpose and meaning in doing the work. And then the majority of the book is focused on evidence-based action. So what does research show actually works to make a fast and fair transition to a fossil-free world and how can all of us be a part of making that happen? Now, I think, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm totally out of the ballpark here, but it just seems in the last six months, perhaps a year, perhaps even after uh, Don't Look Up, uh, the movie, we've seen more climate scientists actually taking quite direct action. Would you say that's right? Is it something? Is that a, is that a sign of desperation that more climate scientists are not just saying, you know, uh, yes, here we can fix it, and uh, and this is yes, it's, we're sure elements of, of your Haiku, but also the but we can fix it part is being ignored. I think it's fair to say there's increasing frustration and even desperation among climate scientists and climate experts. We've really have the scientific knowledge that we need to tackle this problem since almost my whole lifetime or before I was born. And the fact that we've done so much additional research and crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and gotten the error bars down to these tiny margins and, you know, done what science can do to point out the problem, which is basically burning fossil fuels and destroying nature, point out the solutions, which are getting on clean and renewable energy and transforming to a sustainable system of food production. We know how to do those things, but governments and people in power are not making them happen. And it's really increasingly terrifying to feel like we're standing by and watching those warnings and that evidence being ignored. So I, I think that people are getting really compelled to speak up and take more direct and personal action so that we can try to sleep at night and say, look, we didn't just stand by and, you know, um, let, society failed to act when we knew what to do. So I, I think you're right that people, scientists are getting more directly involved. Now, I'm, I'm going to be this, normally I'm a smug cyclist, but I'm actually going to be a smug motorist here now. So um, <laughs> right this second in time on my driveway is an electric car. It is being charged from the solar panels on my roof. So I'm incredibly smug in that, you know, I'm 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 not powering the, the car from from uh, dinosaur juice. I'm absolutely just going from uh, uh, the perfect renewable, the sun. So that's why I'm kind of smug here. However, if if people like me and and the millions of people like me actually just thought, well, we're going to solve the climate crisis by doing what I'm doing here now. That's actually just going to lead to another problem, and that is, you know, mass car use. If everybody starts driving around because they think it, they're, they're, they're being friendly to the to the planet by being smug and having an electric car with a, a solar power uh, uh, charging it, all that does is actually lead to other problems. So, how can you square that circle as a as a climate scientist? 
So your electric car being charged by solar panels on your roof is the second best kind of car. It's definitely better than a fossil powered car, but the best kind of car is actually car free. So this is what our new study is focused on with Polycus. You know, we start from the, the understanding that actually to meet climate and health goals and to reduce inequalities and to make cities safer and more livable and more beautiful, we actually need to reduce cars themselves. Electric cars mm. are a big step forward from a climate perspective compared with fossil cars and all cars need to be fossil free. But actually the biggest benefits and gains will come from reducing unnecessary cars as much as possible. So that was the focus of our new study. So let's let's talk about your new study because it's bubbled up for me I don't know, two, three days ago. I know you've had a, you've had the paper. Then there was a, a, a the conversation piece, and then there's a Guardian piece. So this is bubbling up in many different uh, places, and this is be this, this is be out there. So that's going to bubble up for people too. There's twelve points uh, you've got. I would like to, to to go through that like point by point, and let's let's go you know like backwards until we get to the key ones uh, that you think uh, what cities uh, should be should be doing. Uh, but first of all, yeah, one of the, the kind of the overriding things, and, and this p- perhaps is, is counterintuitive to, to many people, is it, it's not so much what national governments do. Most of the the work on on climate is actually being done, or re- reducing cars for, for most certainly is being done by local governments, by by municipal governments. So, is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a neutral? Should there be more national government stuff anyway? Where, where do you where do you sit on that particular uh, angle? Well, we definitely need much more national climate action. We know that governments' current pledges are. And most likely not sufficient, and if they are barely sufficient with the most optimistic assumptions to meet the agreement of the Paris Agreement, so or to meet the climate targets in the Paris Agreement. So countries are not doing enough, especially historically high-emitting countries like the UK and the US. Um, those national governments need to do much more. There are about 20 countries who have been slowly reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. So that is good news, but that needs to be stepped up much more. At the same time, there are several hundred cities, more than 300 cities, who have been reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. So just by the numbers, we see that cities are actually doing a better job of Mm. putting policies and practices in place to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And it doesn't let national governments off the hook, but it shows that there are important climate actions to be taken at every level of government and really in every place, because ultimately to stop climate change, we have to, humans have to completely stop emitting carbon dioxide and adding it to the atmosphere. So to do that, every city has to do that, every sector, every industry, every country. So it's a lot, it's a big job and we do need everybody to help out. I might be wrong on this, uh, globally but from a uk perspective uh, it seems that that cities are, are able to do this uh, because they have leaders and in, in the uk it's kind of like the, these these in effect voted in mayors so elected mayors who some of their biggest um portfolios a transport. So that's why cities are quite progressive on this because the, the things that that mayors tend to have control over is you know, things like getting cars out of their cities. Is that, is that a fair reflection globally or is that just, am I just l- looking at that purely as a UK thing? 
So our study focused on Europe, which um, in the EU, we have a mission to deliver 100 climate neutral cities by 2030. And that is very soon, as you know, it is less than eight years away. So it's a big job. uh, And there are many cities that are interested and and have signed up, but basically no city that is on track to do it yet or has all the policies or practices in place to make it happen. So it is the case, though, that our study found in Europe that local governments were key in implementing these policies that actually did work to reduce car use. So what we studied was where has car use actually been measurably reduced already in practice? So not just um, models or projections, but actually where has this already worked on the ground? And we found that more than three quarters of these cases, the initiatives were led by local governments. Mm. I kind of mentioned globally there, and you brought it absolutely back to to the focus of your study, which is EU. But let's actually uh, geographically ground you here. So where are you talking from today? And where did you originally come from? Because your accent is not where you're speaking from. Fair enough. (laughs) I grew up in California in a town called Sonoma, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. And my PhD was actually about the impact of climate change on the wine industry, which is uh, the lifeblood of that region and Mm. connection for my family and and part of that landscape and history. Then in 2010, I moved to Lund, Sweden, which is where I'm speaking to you from today. So I'm a sustainability scientist at Lund University. I know Sonoma. I have cycled in in the Sonoma Valley. So, yes, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, And. Let's let's talk about your study now from a, from a slightly different angle. In that, when there was a tweet, and I, I don't know if you answered this or not, but in, in one of the tweet threads where uh, you mentioned your study and you gave the link to the original paper, uh, Hank Swartol of the European Cyclist Federation said, "Yeah, they're all great, all those those uh, those those twelve things you're talking about, but you've missed one." And what you've missed is is, is cycleway networks, is, is is bike infrastructure, basically. And it's either you or somebody else, I can't remember who, kind of then kicked back on that and said, well, actually, so I don't know if it was you or who, who answered that, but can you answer it now? I mean, is the number 13, 14, whatever, is it, you know, get more people on bikes? No, it's not. And I did answer that tweet. Hmm. And I think it's a really important finding from our study, which is that the most effective thing we can do to reduce cars in cities is to focus on that outcome directly and to use both carrots and sticks to reduce car use and increase public transport, walking and cycling. So there's been a lot of focus and especially policymakers and and elected officials really like to focus on carrots, on more good stuff. Here's more bus routes, here's more cycling lanes, pedestrianized streets. Those are all wonderful. And those did feature in many of our top um, strategies, which I know we'll get into more in a minute. But the important point is that those carrots alone are not sufficient to overcome the entrenched infrastructure and incentives, which today favors car use. Mm -hmm. So to really move the needle and to get people out of cars and using other forms of transport, which is what we actually have to do to reduce emissions for climate change, to protect public health, to make cities and streets safer and more livable, we have to actually reduce car use along with increasing sustainable mobility. And to do that, you need to tackle both of those at the same time. 
So I know this is tough, but let me just think about the percent terms of how big a carrot versus how big a stick. So <laughs> in percentage terms, what, what, what are the different sizes there between those two tools? Well, let's see. I'm just looking at the table now. I mean, I think it's it's quite hard to make an apples to apples comparison, not least because so we screened nearly 800 studies and cases to look for initiatives that had already attempted and succeeded to reduce car use. And uh, we ended up finding 12 different ways to do it and almost as many different ways of measuring the reduction in car use. So one, you know, kind of wonky conclusion from our study, which is relevant for researchers and people planning interventions, so city planners and, and policymakers is, Please, please, for the love of all that is good and holy, measure kilometers traveled per person per day in these different modes, because that is what we can actually convert into emissions. And we can talk about health and climate savings. A lot of these studies measured things like one that we'll talk about was about using an app for sustainable mobility. And they said that a very large percent of people who use the app reported in the app that they had uh, reduced their car use, but they did not report by how much. Mm. And, you know, if they skipped one, you know, five minute trip to the store down the street versus a year of long car commutes, that's a very, very different impact for, for climate and for traffic, but we can't tell from the data. So I guess I'm hedging and not really answering your question. Oh, cause I was, I was wanting like a 20% Carrot, eighty percent stick, but you're you're being you're being a scientist and you're giving giving you know, it's very complex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of opting out of that one because our data unfortunately don't mm. really let us say so well. I mean, maybe it will be more obvious when we get into talking about each measure because, um, I mean, one one carrot that is really effective as a carrot is uh, mobility services for mm. universities or commuters. So basically giving free transport passes and mm. linking transport with shuttles um, for students at a university or for commuters at a workplace. That is quite effective. See, when, um, when that's been done in, sorry for interrupting you there, but when that's been yeah. done and when that was done in, in, in Davis, California, mm. you know, the, the very, very good bike network that was in use, you know, since the late 1960s in, in Davis, mm. Uh, very well used uh, over many years. When when they introduced a free bus service for for academics and I believe even for for people who live in the town or the city, um, bike use just you know just got cut off by the knees. Um, so it's that sort of thing. So you, you you might you know think you're doing great by you know making public transport for free, but then that actually you know cuts out a, a healthful form. Of, of transport. So how do you, again, how do you square that circle? Well, I think you're just reinforcing my point, Carlton, which is to beg researchers to please actually report the kilometers traveled by mode share. Because as you say, if an initiative 
succeeds in getting people off of bikes and walking, which is an even healthier and lower emission form of travel than public transport, which is also very good. But, you know, if you're switching a cyclist to a bus rider as opposed, and you haven't reduced driving at all, you really Mm. haven't done anything for climate or health. Mm. So we really need to be able to measure those directly. But I mean, what I can say from our study is that we identified these 12 measures that have demonstrably worked to reduce cars. And we're able to report that in some quantifiable way. The metrics vary between studies, but um, they're clear that they do work to actually reduce cars. And Mm. again, the most effective ones that reduce cars the most for the largest population or for the largest proportion of the city are those that combine carrots to make sustainable mobility, walking and biking and public transport cheaper and easier and more accessible and simultaneously use sticks to restrict and charge for driving and parking. So you, you mentioned there apps for sustainable mobility. That's actually number 12. So we're going to do like a, a pop uh, yeah, countdown here. So in at number 12 is apps for sustainable mobility. Um, and you mentioned there Bologna uh, that, that had a... Uh, that developed a, an app that, that that got people out of cars, but only a, a slight amount. I mean, these, these things, because it's not the the, the build and end all, um, it's just partly. Are many cities actually um, doing just one or two of these things? And, and if, if a city did all 12 of what you're saying, it, it would just reduce car use overnight. <laughs> I would love to visit the city that implements all 12 of these measures. That would be amazing. I mean, yes, I think it would be, you know, the more we know from previous research that policy bundles are more effective. So in other words, having a comprehensive approach, taking combining different measures. So for example, including something to do with prices so that you're steering people towards the healthy and sustainable choice with prices. It shouldn't be the cheapest option to do mm-hmm. something that pollutes. Um, simultaneously having information campaigns and public goods and services to provide alternatives like safe and attractive walking and cycling and public transit. Those are what really works. And, and on that note, we, we could go straight into personalized travel plans uh, because that, that definitely involves uh, some of that. But I know that from from Sustrans in the UK has has done these, very successfully done them, but they're phenomenally expensive because you are literally going to one per, one, one-on-one and then, you know, saying to them, look, did you realize there's a bus right outside your door? You know, that, that kind of, you know, granularity. But that's phenomenally expensive to do that one-on-one. Yes. So we looked at several different kinds of travel planning. Um, The number 11 was personalized travel planning, which you just mentioned. And number 10 was school travel Mm. planning, for example. And those are carrot-only measures. So they're making it cheaper and easier to use public transport and offering advice um, on how to walk, bike, or uh, take public transit to school or work or wherever you're going for the personal use. So those, um, the personalized travel planning reduced car use about 6 to 12%. And pretty similar for the school travel planning, that was 5 to 11% in less cars used to drive kids to school. So that's substantial and worthwhile. Um, but again, I think those measures, and we don't have an example that perfectly compares to this, but combining that with um, restrictions to discourage car use 
while providing good alternatives would make those much more powerful. Hmm. So that's that's 11 and 10. Nine is car sharing. I know um, I've talked to a number of people who are bike advocates, in fact, who, who have, have gone on to found uh, uh, car sharing clubs. And, and one of the ones that uh, was basically 70s and 80s, which is quite, quite successful, was Claire Morissette of Montreal, who there's a there's a the, the main cycleway um through through montreal is named for her and she founded a car club um and and, and she did that exactly even as a bike advocate she was doing that to reduce reduce car use and then a number of other people i know have have, have, have done it in in more modern uh times but is that what you mean by car sharing so car clubs you know rental cars is that, is that what you mean Exactly. So car sharing would be a, a scheme where members can easily rent a car that's nearby for a few hours. So there would be a car, let's say, on the street or in a parking garage, maybe a few blocks from your house. And as a member, you could use an app to unlock it and rent it um, and borrow for a few hours. So maybe you're going to Ikea or doing a big shop or um you need to take a, a special trip or whatever. So the idea would be that it helps it helps people that when it is good for reducing cars, it's when people actually had their own cars and choose to get rid of them because they don't need them anymore. And they only use the car when they really need it from a car sharing service. Mm. So if that's the case, then we found that can have a big impact. So the, the places that have done that are Bremen, Germany and Genoa, Italy. And there they found that having a car sharing car replaced 12 to 15 private cars. So that's obviously really good news for space in cities. And that's something that often gets left out of the discussion. But, you know, the this is one reason that electric cars are not the answer to sustainable mobility, because they're still cars and cars are still pretty inefficient ways to get people around. They spend about 95% of their time parked on the street and mm-hmm. or wherever they're parked. So they're taking up that space. Um, in Sweden, the estimate is that a car uses 100 square meters of city space. And when you think, okay, that's an apartment (laughs) size, um, we could certainly find a more beautiful and, um, you know, beneficial use for 100 square meters than some parking garages and and parking spaces on streets. So the, the parking issue, I mean, Car sharing can really help if it's actually reducing the total number of cars. Mm. The issue with car sharing, though, is that there's some other research suggesting that it has the potential, at least, and may induce the opposite effect. In other words, it might induce people who don't have cars to start using cars more because there is a car in the neighborhood that's so easy and and, um, frictionless to use. So to reduce emissions and to reduce car use overall, we have to be sure that we're designing programs that effectively do that and encourage people to replace their previous cars with a car sharing car. And extrapolating forward, the same could be said for autonomous cars in that that could actually lead to a huge uptick in the number of car journeys. Um, if, you, if, you, if, if you make a car use frictionless, which, which autonomous uh, driving would do, then you just massively increase driving. Yes, we didn't look at autonomous cars in this study, but other studies have indeed found that. And there was a study in the last year on the ride-hailing services Uber and Lyft mm-hmm. in the U.S. that mm-hmm. found that cities car use increased in cities that had Uber and Lyft, uh, especially 
in, in particular with higher income households, it tended to replace transit. So unfortunately, those ride hailing services seem to be increasing car use and increasing emissions rather than reducing them. Mm, yep. Uh, so number eight, we've kind of discussed this already in, in the, 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 the example you've, you've given here is Catania. So this is mobility services uh, for university where they've, they've given a, um, a, a transport, a public transport pass to, to, to students. So we've, we've talked about that. But then uh, why is university travel planning, which is in at number seven, why is that different to personalized travel planning and school travel planning? Well, it seemed to work better. That seems to be the reason it was different. So um, number seven and eight were both to do with university, as you said, and providing um, students with a free public transport pass and shuttle connection reduced car commuting by 24%. And the combined stick and carrot of reduced parking on campus and then discounts and improvements to transit and cycling and infrastructure and advice on how to use them uh, reduced car commuters by the whole university population, so staff and students, by up to 27%. There were several different places that, that combined those initiatives. Mm. Yeah, so University of Bristol did rather well there. Uh, yeah. Six, workplace travel planning. Is that in with number seven there, or is that going to be a bit different? Um, it's a similar idea, so removing parking and that's the stick and then combined with making it easier and cheaper to use public transport and cycling so with physical infrastructure cycle lanes and, and infrastructure better public transit and also advice on how to use those things hmm. so there um the studies that looked at that saw it up to an 18 percent drop in car use hmm. Uh, number five is a one that I'm quite familiar with in that when I cycle in Nottingham on the very nice wide uh, cycleways, when I use one of the rental bikes uh, in Nottingham Ditto, it's all been paid for by this method. So in at number five is a workplace parking charges. Oh, that's interesting that you are actually benefiting from that. That's nice to hear. Um, yeah, exactly. So the most successful was in Rotterdam um, in the Netherlands. So they reduced car commutes by employees 20 to 25%, where, I mean, basically a, a number of studies have shown this, that it is just really nonsensical to provide free parking for workplaces. That That's a basically a subsidy to driving. And um, when you price those parking spaces, they're often worth thousands of dollars per year. And um, because city space is limited and precious and could be used for other things, and um, it, it really makes a lot more sense for to charge you know, the cost for those parking spaces. One, um, a different study that we didn't look at here, uh, but previously has shown that you don't only have to, I mean, something that works very well is to make the full cost visible. And for example, you can cash out employees. I mean, people, unsurprisingly, don't like the idea of having to pay for something that they've previously always gotten for free and suddenly it costs them thousands of dollars. Um, I mean, often what blocks climate action is a small group of outraged, mm -hmm. uh, very vocal, sorry, often middle-aged men, <laughs> our mm -hmm. research shows, is often the group that does that. Um, so you can reduce 
opposition to climate policies by, for example, offering people to cash out. So instead of saying, okay, we're now going to charge you, you know, $2,000 a year for this parking space, for example, you could say, we'll give you $2,000 a year if you don't use this parking space. Hmm. And or we'll give you a credit equivalent value, or we'll give you free public transit if you don't use your parking space, or a credit towards which you could use to buy a nice commuter bicycle and safe storage and showers at work. So there are different ways you can um, structure this so that it would be politically popular and also effective. Yes, politically popular is the, the holy grail there, because these things very often aren't politically popular. Now, I, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, UK internal politics on the NHS, but when about two, three weeks ago, free parking for members of the NHS who were, were obviously worked very hard during the pandemic was removed. So doctors and nurses had their free car parking removed. And there's a huge fuss about how terrible uh, uh, this was, and how all political parties. Uh, there was this wasn't a um, you know a left or right thing. All political parties were pretty much in favour of giving doctors and nurses free car parking. And so I, I made you know a, a, a cynical comment at the time, saying, "Well, okay, where where are the free bus passes, and where are the free bikes?" And mm-hmm. nobody could understand that. It's like, well, you, but would, it's just obvious to give doctors, and my wife is a doctor, uh, to give doctors uh, free uh, 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 parking. But nobody, as in, I suppose, in, in the cashing out equivalent that you, you said, nobody is saying, well, well, we should give people free bus passes, or very, very, very infrequently, give them free bus passes and free bicycles to doctors. That that just doesn't come up as a conversation because it's it's politically just doesn't register. So that politically unpopular thing, how can you make something that's incredibly politically unpopular, popular? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think there's a really important discussions to be having because we know that we have to reduce over dependence on cars in order to meet climate targets and health targets. And then we do need to be having these discussions of, okay, what is a valid use of a car? Who gets to drive and and what should we prioritize? I think there's a very strong argument that people who are dependent on cars for mobility and social inclusion, so those who have disabilities, for example, that require a car, I think that's a very valid use case for a car. Um, I can understand if there are doctors and nurses and other essential workers who have to be at work you know, before public transit is running or work long shifts, maybe that is a good use for a car. But then I think we should be having those conversations explicitly. And you're absolutely right that there are ways to incentivize uh, sustainable mobility that could actually improve health, which last time I checked, doctors and nurses are very keen on doing. Um, We know that active transport is much better for people's both physical and mental health. Um, to actually, you know, move more is one of the key ways to address a lot of the health issues that we have today. Um, so I think there is a lot of scope for making those improvements. Mm. And for the record, my wife cycled to work today, despite having <laughs> this, we're, 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 despite having smug um, solar power panels charging her electric car. It is really her car. Uh, she she still cycled to, to to work, so it is possible, even if you are in many other respects potentially. Uh, 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 being a doctor, being uh, uh, normally assumed to be car dependent. 
So oh, gold start to her. I approve. Yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> thank you. Um, I think she's doing it for fitness, to tell the truth. I don't think the climate comes into it, uh, to tell the truth. It's very much for fitness and, and, and health. But anyway, uh, mobility services for commuters, that sounds like, and this is number four, that sounds very much like um, travel planning. Yeah, the difference there that made it even more effective is that it was a collaboration between local government and private companies to provide free public transport passes to their employees and to connect those transit stops to the workplace directly with private shuttles. So they made it really seamless um, and Mm. then promoted it. And that actually was quite a big reduction, 37% reduction in the share of commuters driving. You add all these percentages up and they're, they're getting to be like 200%, 300%. So, yes, we need we need a city to do every one of these. And then you have minus cars. That'd be great. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I mean, this is the issue that, you know, some studies measured employees as a population. Mm. Some measured school children. Some measured university, either staff or students or both. Some measured geographically who's coming in and out of the city. So there are different metrics, but... I agree that, I mean, this also shows there's a lot of scope for, for example, employers and schools and universities and hospitals to engage and to lead these initiatives and to collaborate with local government and other stakeholders to actually put these things into place. So we don't have to wait for someone else to do these things. There are opportunities already today. Mm. Right. And here, here you're coming to be a, a bit more radical, and this is definitely politically Un- unpopular and that is when you it, it's uh, you've said it limited traffic zones which is a soft way of saying ban cars uh, <laughs> basically and, and you've used rome as one of the uh, examples there so why rome so rome was the case that we found that has actually implemented this and reduced traffic 20 percent uh, up during so basically the design of their policy was to restrict car entry in certain times and certain parts of the city center only to residents. So you can't drive a car as a way of getting from point A to point B through the center of Rome. Um, And that worked to reduce cars by 20% through in that whole city center area during those times. And it also worked even when it wasn't in place. So even during the hours where that wasn't the case, it was still 10% less cars and less traffic. So that was quite effective. So restricted how with automatic camera recognition of number plates with barriers what 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 worked in Rome and what what do you suggest cities should do Oh, good question. I actually don't have the answer to that at the top of my head. Um the specifics of how they implemented. I think um one part of the equation that was important for Rome was that they use the violation fines to finance their public transport system. So again, coupling the stick to the carrot is a really important way of gaining public acceptance because I think cities need to make the case. And I mean, the the piece that I wrote for the conversation, my editor called an evidence-based rant against cars. So there's plenty of evidence of, you know, why is it that cars are a problem? What is it that's unequal and unfair about the way that cars are used, especially in cities today? So we have that evidence. And I think people in positions of power need to use it to make these arguments of, look, you know, the current system is really unfair. It's generally a small number of people who drive the most, and those tend to be the wealthiest. Mm. So it's increasing inequity. Mm. The way to make things better is to 
reduce over driving by those who drive the most and use the funds that that raises to make sustainable mobility more affordable and more accessible and better for everyone. Now, you, you mentioned Rome there, and then I've just done a, a, a quick search there because I can't find Paris. So Paris is normally used by lots of people, including myself, as like the poster child uh, for a lot of these policies, like removing car parking places and stuff and the 15-minute you know, city. But you haven't got Paris. So why haven't you got Paris? No, I agree. I'm also a bit surprised. I, I think it's a function because I think the 15 minute city is a brilliant idea and it's very effective and it's a way of integrating many of these different instruments and policies that we talk about in these car reduction strategies. Um, I think the only reason it didn't come up is that it didn't fit our search terms. So to screen these 800 cases and papers, we looked for uh, studies that had specifically set out to reduce car use as an objective and combine that with something demonstrating measured effect of how successfully they did that. So it must have, you know, there wasn't something published in English after the year 2010 that specifically said it aimed to reduce car use and measure that reduction or else we would have caught it in our study. So somehow Paris slipped through the cracks there. Hmm. So we need some more studies done on, on Paris because they do seem to be doing many of the things which you've which you've um, you, you've mentioned there. Certainly, they're doing very well on certainly planning to remove car parking spaces. And then the, uh, the mayor Anne Hildalgo saying that this is to do with with equity reasons and female equity reasons and all sorts of stuff like that. Whereas mostly it's, it's men who are, are doing the bulk of the of the driving in Paris, and and, and she wants to you know, make a fairer transport system. So yes, mm. we need more, more studies from Paris uh, or France to, well, no, 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 Paris uh, to come in. Uh, so we, we mentioned parking there for Paris, but no, that isn't number two uh, for you. So parking and traffic controls. Why is parking such a uh, an emotive issue for a start? Because that, that does seem, if you look at, you know, local newspaper I don't know what it's like in 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 London, Sweden, but certainly if you look in uh, local newspapers in the UK, you know, parking does seem to be one of the major stories, you know, for for local newspapers. You know, you remove somebody's parking, and that's you know, three weeks of solid news for, for some newspapers because it, it leads to incredible friction. So, so talk me through parking then, and 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 how that can uh, parking and traffic controls, and how that can be. Uh, uh, done and 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 politically managed. Right. Well, I think a lot of it comes back to the equity issues that you were mentioning. A, a study by um, Felix Kreitzer and others found that in Berlin, car users use three and a half times more city space than non-car users, and a lot of that is through on-street parking. So basically, it it really is an equity issue that the the parking spaces for people who are over using cars takes away limited space that others also need and deserve. And what Oslo did, which is the the example for this number two parking and traffic control, uh, was remove parking spaces that were formerly in the city center and alter traffic routes, um, replacing this space that had been dedicated to cars to car-free streets, bike lanes, and walkways. And that was really successful. So it reduced uh, car use 19%. But going back to where I started with on that, and that is you're touching the third rail, you know, you're touching a a live wire, basically, um, by removing 
parking. So, so uh, maybe looking at maybe just not so much something you study, but how Paris is doing it, just the way they're they're doing it. Um, you know, incrementally. So they're not doing it, you know, overnight, removing every single parking space, but they've got a goal uh, to remove parking space. So, so is that the way to do it, do you think, to, to, to do it almost by stealth? Because if you actually said we're going to remove, you know, uh, half of the, the, the parking spaces in this city, it would just be politically un, unpalatable. I think it's actually important to make the case publicly and to share the data on how unequally distributed driving is. In the UK, 40% of the lowest income households don't have a car, mm. whereas almost 90% of the highest income households do. So privileging driving is really privileging those who already are the most privileged. <laughs> and I think that's a very tough case to make. No, 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 no you're right. But I mean, you, 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 even though you're right, when when that comes into the letters, you know, pages, and it comes into the like the shock jocks talking about this, it always, you know, said people, like, you know, hardworking motorists, um, and, and and when you point out to, to to these people, well, actually, you know, the poorest people really are not in cars. It almost as though they haven't actually thought about that, and it, it, it's never really they've never really figured that out that uh, the very poorest in society um, really aren't in cars. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, we see from the data that when you reduce over automobilization, when you free cities from unnecessary cars, they become nicer places to live and work and they become actually better for everyone. They're, the air is easier to breathe. There's more conviviality and interaction on the streets. People actually get to know their neighbors and use the outside space because it's not given over to cars. I think something that really struck me a good friend of mine actually bicycled from Stanford where we were studying to the southern tip of South America over two years. And he had an incredible journey and met so many people along the way and was hosted by people and gave talks along the way. And when he did that same, or when he crossed the U.S. by bike, he said he could never find people because they were never visible. They were always in their cars. The only place he could actually meet people and talk to people was either at gas stations or grocery stores. So, I mean, when you think about the way that cars divide society and separate people from their neighbors, they actually have a lot of really negative effects. And the cities that have succeeded in reducing cars report really positive benefits from the way that the streets look and feel from the business and that are thriving there, from the way that actually space is used in a much more inspiring and beautiful way and the way people have more time to do the things they want because they're not stuck behind the wheel of a car. And not just stuck behind the wheel of a car, stuck behind the wheel of a car with a roof on and with windows and with air conditioning and with your own music and, and et cetera. It's that, you know, you, you, you're enclosed, you're in, a, you're in a little bubble, which is perhaps one of the reasons why your friend didn't see uh, people because they're, they're, inside an enclosed space but mightn't there be a, an argument <laughs> i'm not being totally serious here but mightn't there be an argument for in effect going back to the original motor cars which were roofless and you could then talk to people okay they were doing 90 miles an hour so maybe you can't but <laughs> but if you, it's it's that it's that enclosure of motoring that's one of the big problems and we actually if you if you removed the roof and you made all cars into convertibles in effect that might actually um that might actually be a social good 
Kim, help me out here. How serious am I being here? Let's, I, I've got it. Let's remove the roof of cars. Let's shrink them so that instead of 95% of the weight of the car being the car itself rather than mm. the person you're transporting. So let's make the majority of the, the, the vehicle actually the person themselves. And let's make them run on your energy so that you're actually exercising at the same time. Ah, oh, you know what? We've just invented the bicycle. The bicycle is the perfect car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, and something we didn't look at in this study that didn't come up in our um, in our search terms, but that other studies have found is really effective, is electric bikes. Those mm-hmm. can really the, uh, replace cars. And the research has shown that people do tend to use them to replace cars rather than um, just avid cyclists cycling more, for example. But having an electric bike can make it more feasible for someone who lives a bit further from work or maybe who has a family and needs to pick up kids and groceries that might be difficult by car, or sorry, excuse me, by bike. Um, It can really extend the capacity of what a bike can do. And then you also have the social benefits of, you know, being actually physically present on the street and able to talk to your neighbors. Hmm. Mm. Yes, I wasn't being totally serious, I guess, because, you, you know, you're right. Um, a, a bicycle is a, is a much more convivial tool than even a, a, the nicest of, of convertible sports cars. Um, so now let, let's get on to number one. And I'll use an example. And that is uh, London has come on in just leaps and bounds. Uh, with, they have got uh, f- very, very good uh, protected bikeways. They've got a very good... Um, city bike share scheme. There's all sorts of things. You know, a lot of the roads in London are now, you know, majority of them actually cyclists, whereas used to be majority of them were were motorists. Yet a lot of it, I I think you can absolutely uh, tie down to your number one thing here, and that is a congestion charge. Charge motorists for coming into cities. Yes, make the cost of driving visible because... At the moment, a lot of the costs are hidden. Society pays a lot of the costs of driving in the form of pollution and traffic and delays and accidents and health and climate change. Whereas we really need to make it more visible that the polluter should be paying for using this polluting technology of a car. And when you do that, like in congestion charges, London reduced center city traffic by 33%. So that was by far the most effective intervention in our whole study because that was for the entire region and the entire geographical area of the city. So not just a certain population of workers or university staff or so on, but for the whole city. So that also answers uh, Hank Swartow's point of, of, do you need to put bike lanes in everywhere? Well, yes, maybe, but potentially of more use is actually just reduce the amount of driving by making sure that the the polluter pays. Yeah. So again, this was an example of linking carrots and sticks. So the majority of the funds raised from the congestion charge in London has been used to fund public transport investments. So again, that's the kind of thing that really makes it possible to gain political support because people recognize that it's fair. Okay, if we're charging for polluting transport, we want to make it easier and cheaper and more accessible to use non-polluting transport. So directly linking, you know, the fees from one to support reducing the cost of another is 
something that increases legitimacy because people understand the connection there. But many cities actually give you discounts or, or perhaps even don't charge you at all if you're an electric car. So that's not the polluter isn't paying there at all because they're, they're not polluting at source. So you think electric cars should also be charged here because they're, they're car-shaped objects. <laughs> they want to be bicycles, right? They're, they're just on the journey to be bicycles. Well, I mean, that's a little bit of a separate issue. Those congestion, the incentives to make it cheaper to use electric cars are designed to speed up and incentivize the transition, which does need to happen to make all cars fossil free. So I think it does make sense to have, um, to make it economically advantageous to drive an electric car because we need to turn over the fleet of cars. Mm. The problem is that that is happening far too slowly at the moment to make a big dent in emissions, especially by 2030. And we know from science that we globally have to cut greenhouse gas emissions about in half by 2030 to avoid catastrophic climate change. So we actually need to retire fossil fuel infrastructure early in order to do that. Mm. That means closing down power plants and pipelines and cars and things that run on fossil fuels ahead of their planned lifetime. So I do think it makes sense to have incentives to switch to fossil-free cars, but we also need to be thinking the best car is actually a bicycle or a bus or a train or walking or not a car at all. And how do we prioritize people, not cars, at the center of cities? Mm. Yes, and that's that's a, a good note to stop, actually. Uh, I do like that. Definitely prioritize people. And the car, uh, the best kind of car is a bicycle. Yes, I like it too. <laughs> um, so where can people... Um, Find this paper. Let, I'll, I'll, in the show notes, I'll give the links to, to everything, but let's give an audio one so, for right now. So where, where can people find the paper? And then if you could also tell us where people can find you, Kim. Sure. Um, well, I've been tweeting an awful lot about it, so you can certainly find it on my Twitter. I'm K-A underscore Nicholas on Twitter. Um, I'll be writing about this paper in my monthly climate advice column, which is called We Can Fix It. And you can subscribe over, over on Substack. Those are probably the best places to find me. Okay, and the paper itself? Uh, the paper itself is um, published in Case Studies in Transport Research, and the Conversation UK has the piece that's called The 12 Best Ways to Get Cars Out of Cities, ranked by New Research. And then The Guardian ran a condensed version of that over the weekend. Yes. And we are now looking for uh, a, a city to implement uh, at least 10 of those 12, aren't we? If you get a city to implement 10, I will ride my bicycle there from Lund, if it's anywhere in Europe, and I would love to see it. So please, please, cities, uh, I would tell me if you're doing this, and I would love to visit. Thanks to Professor Kim Nicholas there, and thanks also to you for listening to episode 295 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, now brought to you in association with Turn Bicycles. Watch out for the next episode popping up in your feed real soon. But meanwhile, get out there and ride. <laughs>